Yes, our reading tonight is the New Test, the Old Testament, Obadiah, the whole book. Not that much. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations, as you have done it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance." Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. The people from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Galilee. This company of Israelites 
exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shepparda will possess the town of Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. May God bless to our understanding this reading of his holy word. We've just heard the word of God, so let's pray that he would help us as we reflect on it. Father, we thank you for the words that you speak to us in the Bible, even the less visited parts. So we pray that tonight you might help us open our ears, open our hearts, so that we might hear your word and believe it and live it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have asked the question, as we read through Obadiah, and I have asked this question a few times this week, why is Obadiah in the Bible? It is, uh, it is the smallest book in the Old Testament, and it doesn't seem as remarkable as some of the others. There, there are other prophets that get the big jobs, right? You know, there are prophets who, who get to speak against the superpowers of the world at the time, Babylon, Assyria... There are prophets like Isaiah who, who ministered through multiple generations. He was a big deal in Israel. There are prophets like Daniel who had these amazing visions. Prophets like Ezekiel who, who spent years showing these crazy signs to speak against the kings and the priests of Israel. There's even one guy that got swallowed by a big fish. And then you've got Obadiah. He gets 21 verses in the Old Testament, and that's it. And he gets to write about a tiny little nation that you may never have heard of, who was on the sidelines when the Babylonian army destroyed Jerusalem. I've heard one person say that Obadiah is kind of like the, the appendix of the Old Testament. That, you know, so I'm, I'm sure it's important. I'm just not entirely sure why it's there. Uh, but as you may be able to relate to, if you've ever had a ruptured appendix, Obadiah's prophecy covers a small but especially painful part of Israel's story, being betrayed by a brother. Sibling rivalries are a pretty significant part of history. They, they were there at the start, Cain and Abel kicked it off, and then all the way through history... You read these stories of siblings who didn't get on very well. So Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt, apparently she orchestrated the deaths of three of her siblings, uh, two of whom, may I add, were also her husbands. So uh, that's a nice family dinner to turn up to. Uh, Mary and Anne Boleyn, the sisters, uh, they fought over the love of the completely charming and I'm sure handsome and not stinky at all, King Henry VIII. Uh, more recently... Prince Henry and Prince William. Prince Henry called his brother William my best friend and nemesis. It's painful, isn't it? Being hurt by someone you counted as a friend, as an ally, as a confidant, as a brother. Israel and Edom are two countries that had a long history with each other. They are brothers they're descended from brothers, Jacob and Esau. Their story, Jacob and Esau, is right back in the middle of Genesis. J 
Jacob and Esau were born into a special family. God had made a promise to the, the father of that family, Abraham, that God would bless him immeasurably and that he would bless the whole world through him and his descendants. And so that promise was passed on to Abraham's son Isaac and that promise would be passed on to Isaac's eldest son. But things got a little bit tricky at that point because Isaac and his wife Rebekah had twins, Jacob and Esau, and they were rivals from day one. Esau came out first, and so technically he was the eldest, he got the birthright, he got the inheritance, and so God's promises would flow through him and his descendants. Now, as they grew up, Esau was, he was the outdoorsy type brother, loved to get out there amongst it, Jacob was more of a homebody, and so one day Esau came back home after a, a big day of just being a boss outside, getting really tired, and he's starving. And so Jacob just happens to be cooking a stew. So Esau comes in and he says, hey, brother, give me some of that stew. And Jacob sees the opportunity to get something out of this. And he says, okay, I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. I'll give you some stew if you agree to let me be the oldest brother. Now Esau, he said, look, what good is a birthright to me? I'm about to die. But what he's saying is, what good is the promise of a special relationship with God? What good is the primary place in God's mission to fix the world? And so in one of the worst deals of all time, Esau traded the promise of God for a lamb shank. Now, Jacob doesn't come off very well here either. He, he coerced his brother Esau into a bad trade. And later on in the story, he tricks his dad, Isaac, into giving him Esau's inheritance. Now, you can probably imagine how well things went in that family from here. Esau says, I'm going to kill you. Jacob decides to run away and leave his family forever to get away from his brother. Now, years later, Jacob and Esau made up, they reconnected, but their descendants, Israel and Edom, were enemies through the generations. Edom was a constant thorn in Israel's side, and even after Israel split into a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, Edom continued to be a thorn in the side, a particularly spiky thorn, in the side of Judah, that southern kingdom. So Israel and Judah, they had hundreds of years of being a major economic, military player in that part of the world. They, they were like the, Israel was like the, the successful child in the family, you know, the one that actually kind of got a career and did all the things. Edom was like the brother who could just never quite get it together, you know, the, the one who just never seemed to add up to as much as his brother. And so Edom made their settlements in, in the, the barren mountains east of Jerusalem, in, in the cliffs. They made caves in these cliffs. Later on, that, that's where, if you know the city of Petra, that's where that would be built, that big city carved into the side of a cliff. But it looked like in this story that Edom had the last laugh. When Jerusalem in 586 BC was attacked and destroyed by the Babylonian army, Edom stood back and 
laughed. They celebrated, they looted the city, and then they skipped safely back home to their mountain fortresses. And this is what the Jewish exiles saw over their shoulder as they were carried away to exile in Babylon. The big, well-known prophets in the Old Testament talk about what God's going to do, about the superpowers of the world and what they've done to his people. They talk about what God's going to do about the, the spiritual unfaithfulness of Israel, but what's God going to do about Edom? Well, God sends a message through the prophet Obadiah. We don't know much about this guy, Obadiah. There are other Obadiahs earlier in the Old Testament, but it doesn't look like this guy is one of those. Obadiah, this one, is probably one of the Israelites in exile in Babylon. One of the people who looked over his shoulder and saw what the Edomites were doing as he left Jerusalem. And so God sends a message to the Israelites through Obadiah about Edom. Verse 1, this is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. And there's three things that we're going to notice as we go through this little book. First thing, God says that he will bring the proud to justice. After years and years of feeling inferior to Israel, Edom finally thinks that it's come out on top. And so they feel... They feel proud. Babylon wiped out Jerusalem, but they weren't able to get to the Edomites up in their mountain caves. And so Edom felt kind of untouchable. They, can't, they laughed at the misfortune of others and they thought to themselves, hey, I'm, we're going well. We, we, we kind of, we're fine, we're set. But this is what God says about Edom. Have a look at verse 2 and verse 3. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Who can bring me down to the ground? I reckon you've heard people say that in life, right? Or if you haven't heard the words come off there, you've seen it in people's faces. You know what it looks like when people think that they are so self-sufficient, so untouchable, that it just oozes out of them. The problem with pride is that we're saying on the inside of our hearts, I don't, I don't need God. I am God. Every good thing that I've got comes from me. And I can do whatever serves me, regardless of what that does to other people. That's, that's pride. But God always brings the proud to justice. Have a look at what he says in verse 4. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. The picture that we get here is that Edom is so blinded by their pride, so focused on their invincibility... God says he's going to bring them down in a way that they don't see coming and to an extent that they, they couldn't imagine. In verse 6, we find out that justice for Edom is not going to mean getting their wings clipped. It's going to mean total destruction. Verse 6, how Esau will be ransacked, its hidden treasures pillaged. And when justice does come, it's going to be 
a surprise. It's going to be unexpected. While Edom is sitting happily shielded from their enemies, trouble will come from their friends. Look at verse 7. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. For all of Edom's security, for all their seeming invincibility against the strongest armies and weapons in the world, it's the quiet knife that will do them in. God says, I will bring them to justice and they won't see it coming. And it happened. Around 40 years later, Edom was invaded by one of their allies and Edom as a nation was never heard from again. And on the flip side, a few years after that, Cyrus the Persian would overthrow the Babylonian Empire and release the Jews, send them home back to Jerusalem. God will always bring the proud to justice. There are moments in our lives when we are hurt by people who seem to think that they are untouchable. Someone at school who laughs at your weakness, at your failure. A boss who takes and takes and takes from you and then takes the credit when success finally comes. A colleague who mocks you for what you believe and takes every misfortune of yours as an opportunity to ask, oh, where's your God? Groups around the world who dance on the ashes of Christian churches. There are moments like that when we maybe quietly ask ourselves, yeah, where is God? Why does he let this happen? How can God let people get away with what they're doing? And when those questions go unanswered, our minds start to drift in maybe one of two different directions. Maybe our mind starts to go towards despair. Maybe God's actually not as reliable as I thought. Or maybe our mind goes in a different direction towards revenge, towards thinking about how can I... How can I hurt that person who hurt me? You know, whether, whether that's in reality or just in your mind where you can retreat into the fantasy of how good it would be if you could laugh at their misfortune. But Obadiah says, God always brings the proud to justice, whether that's in this life or in eternity. Sometimes God does break the wheel of history and and he puts a stop to what's going on. Empires end. Leaders are taken away. Bosses are moved on. And sometimes those things don't happen. But God still promises that justice will come. Jesus knows what it feels like to be mistreated by people who thought they were untouchable. People who laughed at his pain. People who thought that they had the power to do whatever they wanted to him. But Jesus held on to the promise that God will always bring the proud to justice. Later on, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says, When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
God will always bring the proud to justice, whether that is in this life, in this history, or in eternity. That's the first thing that Obadiah wants us to hear. The second thing that God has to say through Obadiah is that God will bring the traitor to justice. So when the Jews in exile thought back to the pain of Jerusalem, it wasn't just the smugness and the the pride of Edom that stung. It was the betrayal. And so the second thing that God says through Obadiah is that he will bring the traitor to justice. Have a look at verse 10. Because of your violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. Now, remember that Judah and Edom weren't just neighbours, they were brothers. Did you notice that through Obadiah, through this book, Edom isn't always called Edom, and Judah isn't always called Judah. They are often called Esau and Jacob. And when God uses those names, he's pointing us back to the relationships that these two nations were supposed to have. So if you go back to the story, after all the brotherly shenanigans that went on between Jacob and Esau, you know, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to run away. After years and years and years, Jacob decided to return home. And he knew that he would have to throw himself on Esau's mercy, otherwise he'd be dead. And so he plans gifts and he plans these big speeches to ask for his brother's mercy and he prays to God that Esau might not kill him. And then finally, when he approaches Esau, and Esau happens to have 400 armed men behind him, just to you know, kind of make Jacob sweat a little bit, Jacob bows down on the ground and he prepares his speech. But the next moment, it's a little bit like the, the parable of the lost son. In Genesis 33, it says, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is the relationship that Judah and Edom were supposed to have. Brothers who love each other, who forgive each other, who are loyal to each other. But that's not how the rest of the story went. That's not what happened on the day that Babylon crashed through the walls of Jerusalem. From up on his rocky ledge, Edom saw his brother Judah being torn apart by an invading army And he could have helped. He could have come to his brother's rescue. But look at what Edom did. Look at verse 11. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off your brother's wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. And Edom didn't just sit there and watch. Look at verse 12. Edom gloated. He rejoiced over what was happening to his brother. And he didn't just gloat. Look at verse 13. He marched through his brother's gates and he looted his house. And he didn't just loot it. Look at verse 14. He chased down the survivors. Some of them he killed. Some of them he handed over to the invaders. The Edomites betrayed their family. And this is the last thing that the Jewish exiles saw. 
as they were carried away to captivity in Babylon. This is like the, the moment in The Lion King, if you've seen it, where Mufasa gets caught in the stampede. He's clinging to the side of a cliff, trying to, trying to escape from the, the crushing hooves of the antelope that are rushing through the gorge below, and he sees his brother, Scar. And he cries out to his brother, Scar, brother, help me. And Scar, he sees his brother, he digs his claws into Mufasa, he grins and he whispers in his ear, you might know the line, long live the king. And he throws him to his death. Edom wasn't just proud or boastful. Like God had abandoned them and cut them off forever. God wants them to know. He saw what Edom did to them. And he will bring them to justice. God sees when people are hurt by the ones who are supposed to care for them. When children are hurt by their parents. When sisters are hurt by their brothers. When people are hurt by their governments. When friends are betrayed. When promises are broken, when trust is abused, when you counted on someone for support, but instead they benefited from your misery. God sees that. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't wave it away. In fact, he knows what that's like. Jesus was betrayed by his closest friends. He was killed by his own flesh and blood, by his countrymen. God has a particular compassion on those who have been betrayed, on people whose trust has been broken. And why is that? Because God loves to wrap us up in his faithfulness, his trustworthiness as a father. He is the one who will never turn his back. He's the one who will never turn us away in our time of need. He is filled with compassion for people who've been betrayed and he's filled with passion to make things right. In fact, that's what we see in the last part of Obadiah's message. God will bring the nations to justice and he will bring his people home. Obadiah is a book about Edom, but it's not just about Edom. It's a book about how God will bring pride and betrayal to justice, but it's not only about those particular evils. Obadiah looks at Edom's date with justice as a picture of how God will bring justice to every part of the world and make things right everywhere, one day very soon. Look at what verse 15 promises us about the future. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. God says a day is coming when he will judge everyone in the world according to the things they've done. It's not an unfair standard. When God looks at the world in every time, in every place, in every generation, in every culture, he sees a world full of people who are like Edom. All of us, we are proud. 
we've hurt people we were supposed to care for. Obadiah has this picture for how we've, we've all lived. He takes something that the Edomites literally did and he uses it as a, a bit of a picture for something that we all do. It's there in verse 16. He says, you drank on my holy hill. What's that about? Well, after the exiles were taken away out of Jerusalem, the Edomites had a big party in Jerusalem, seemingly right there on the temple mountain. They stood in God's place, the place where God lived as the king of his people, and they celebrated themselves. They celebrated how secure and how great they were. It's a powerful picture of something that we all do. It's a powerful picture of, of sin, of taking God's place in our own lives, getting drunk on living for ourselves. And so God says in verse 16, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. What Obadiah is talking about is that just like the people of the world have gotten drunk on their own greatness, one day they will drink something else. The world will drink the cup of God's judgment. Now, this is supposed to be a, a word of comfort for the exiles, but I think any honest listener has got to find this a little bit unsettling. As you have done, so it will be done to you. Israel has done their share of doing, right? Like, they're no better than Edom, they're no better than Babylon, they're no better than anyone. Neither are we. But verse 17 says that rather than receiving punishment in the future, here's what the, the exiles of Israel, God's people, will get. Have a look at verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. And verse 19 and 20, it goes on to talk about how the Israelites will take back the lands of Israel, the law belong to them, and they will rule over the whole world side by side with God. Now, if you read that with the same eyeballs that I read that, you know that Israel doesn't deserve that. But God made a promise to them. He made a promise to love them even when they don't love Him. He made a promise to have mercy on anyone who turns to Him. And particularly, God promised that someone would come through that country, through Israel, who would rule over the whole world and would actually have the power to make things right. Now, this isn't looking forward to some day in the future where Israel is this renewed political force in the world. This is looking forward to a, a person who will come and take the place of Israel, someone who will make things right. It's talking about Jesus. And he will gather up a whole bunch of people, people from every nation, every background, every storyline, people who've been rescued from captivity to sin. He'll gather them up and he will bring them into a world without injustice. That's the hope that Obadiah and Jesus offer, that the future will be so much better than you can possibly imagine. So the question from the start, why, why is Obadiah in the Bible? Well, I think Obadiah is here 
to give us three things. First thing is comfort. The comfort that comes from knowing that one day the suffering, the betrayal will be over. One day soon. There will be a day when you will not have to suffer the trickery, the meanness, the spite, the selfishness of anyone else ever again. So keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Don't give up because that day is coming. Obadiah is here to bring us comfort, but Obadiah is also here to give us something else, to to bring us contrition, you know, when, when you feel sorry for stuff. Because this kind of hope that Obadiah promises, we, we don't deserve this. We have been as proud and as treacherous as Edom. We have acted like all this stuff that we've got in our life, that it came from us. When we look at the success and the, the good things that we have, we kind of look at ourselves and go, hey, good job. When we think about our security, we give ourselves the credit for that. We're proud. And we, we are just as treacherous as Edom. I know that you've done this because I've done this too. How many times have you celebrated on the inside when someone else has failed? We don't deserve to live in a world without injustice because we're the ones who pour injustice into it every day. But Jesus invites us to come and live in that world with him. Not because we deserve it, but because of his mercy. Obadiah is here to bring us comfort, to bring us contrition, but also to give us compassion. Compassion on this world that we live in because, again, this kind of hope we do not deserve. As we call out for God to bring justice on this world, as we should, as we call out for God to bring an end to the mistreatment and the oppression and the bitterness and selfishness and ugliness that goes on in this world, as we should, we also need to call out for mercy because we deserved God's justice for the things that we've done. But instead, he has loved us, forgiven us, washed away the debt for the things that we've done by the blood of his son, Jesus. He's given us mercy. And so when we look at a world that sorely needs someone to come and do justice and make it right, we're also looking at a world that sorely needs someone to come and pour out his mercy, to bring people who don't deserve it, to put their trust in his son, Jesus, to be washed clean and to also have that hope of a world where injustice is done. Friends, this book is here for a reason. It's here to give us comfort. It's, it's here to help us to be contrite. It's here to help us to have compassion on a world that needs God's mercy. So let's ask that he might help us with that now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us a hope through the Lord Jesus that we do not deserve. We are the ones that have brought pride and betrayal and injustice into this world, and yet you have poured out your mercy on us, washing us clean from the things that we've done by your son, Jesus. Father, we want to pray that as we look out at this world that needs justice, that we might also 
long that you might pour out your mercy on this world. Lord, please bring more and more people like us who don't deserve your love and mercy to put their trust in your son, to have their injustices washed away and to have the hope of a world where you make things right. We ask it in Jesus' name.